0: Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. So this week, it's time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into the stories that you've heard in the headlines. So this week, we've got General David Deptula. Hey, good to be here. Sir, great to have you. We also have Todd Sledgehammer with us. Great to be here, Slick. And Anthony Laser lazarski Great to be with the group again. All right, love having you guys on. And for those that are not aware, Sledge and Laser are, are Washington experts who have, you know, been part of the Rendezvous for a while now. So really, really appreciate having them. And then I also want to welcome Mitchell's own Caitlin Lee. Caitlin, welcome back to the Rendezvous.
1: Hey, Sledge, great to be here.
0: All right, Laser and Sledge, I want to get started with you. We've seen a lot of headlines talking about the debt ceiling. Can you walk us through this issue and what's in play, and how could this impact defense? So right
2: now we've already reached the debt ceiling. Debt ceiling is set at $31.4 trillion. We've reached that on the 19th of January. The Treasury, Secretary of Treasury, Treasury Department uh, took extraordinary measures, basically freed up some additional money, about $400 billion worth, so that we can continue to pay our bills and they expect it to last right now. I mean, an estimate would be June or early June, which they're calling an the X date. So right now we're we're operating on this, we're spending this extra money that they made available through different measures. And we have to, as Congress has got to come up with an agreement to raise the debt ceiling. And where the impasse is, is that the administration wants a clean passage. So they just want to raise the debt ceiling and that's it. And they can discuss other issues. However, the House Republicans have said that they will not agree to any debt ceiling increase with either out, without some sort of budget agreement or some reforms on spending. So the bottom line is that they want to look at you know how they can cut spending and they want to have that as part of the debt ceiling increase. They've got a, Speaker McCarthy's got a meeting with President Biden this Wednesday. There's been meetings with other members. So the good thing is they're talking. But I heard a quote recently that says, well, you know, because everybody's optimistic, this is, we're not going to go into fall. We're not going to let anything bad happen. And so we will probably come to an agreement. And I I can't remember which member said that. It said, well, if somebody, the doctor came up and said, you probably will live, I don't think you'd be that optimistic. So there's a lot of work to be done. I believe they will get it done, but it needs to get done sooner than later because we don't want to walk up to the end of the cliff in June and have no agreement. So there's going to have to be deals done and the tie to defenses is what do they do with the budget? What do they do with the reforms that they're going to have? And how does that impact defense spending when they come to this agreement for debt increase?
3: Yeah, if I could add just a couple things there, Slick. So, you know, I I think the promises that Speaker McCarthy made to get elected Speaker are starting to come to roost here. And I know one of those was we have to cap whatever spending at the FY22 spending levels. Now, that doesn't imply that DOD is going to get what they got in FY22 as top line for the entire government, but it shows that there's going to be a lot of negotiating. And I don't think there's really consensus on what the debt ceiling agreement's going to look like. Laser mentioned that the president and the speaker meeting on the 1st of February, but I'm starting to hear things like there will be a short-term agreement to raise the debt ceiling and it will be tied to the end of the fiscal year. So it'll push something out, maybe even a clean agreement to get us to the end of September. will be tied with whatever Congress is going to do in terms of the budget deal and the FY24 appropriations. Unfortunately, I'm also hearing that there's a possibility of a long-term continuing resolution to fund us in FY24, something to the effect of a 16-month CR, and that would take us into January of 2025, you know, past obviously the next presidential election. But as everyone out there knows, the big impact of a continuing resolution is the, for defense in particular, is the previous enacted fiscal year funding levels and no new starts. So there would be some policy implications, and I think that will be almost as traumatic as any reductions in spending for DOD.
0: Gents, you were both in Washington in 2011 when the Budget Control Act was passed, you know, which led to years worth of serious defense spending cuts. So do you see this fight heading the same way?
2: I do not see it heading the same way and both now Sledge and I were both there. And the one thing, you know, it was sequestration was the agreement that was never going to happen because it was so bad that we'd, we'd never let it impact us like that we did. And again, most of the members are still here. They remember how bad it was. I don't see it going there, but you know, going back to everything that Sledge said, there are there are impacts on whatever they're going to do with the debt ceiling and how this impacts budget. And there is an agreement between you in again, you've got the FY 22 house side, you know, budget cap and the Senate has no cap. I mean, they're, they're going to take the president's budget and they're going to move forward. And so we're going to run into a agreement or, you know, as they go into try to reconcile the two bills, the appropriations bills on both sides, that's where there's going to be an impact. And whether it's going to be a year-long CR, which we've never, defense has never been on a year-long CR before, Uh, they could throw anomalies, you know, which is exceptions to the CR. But again, I don't see sequestration. And even Speaker McCarthy has said that he does not want to cut defense. And what he's going to look at is making sure that we continue to fund defense, but he's also going to look for efficiencies.
3: I'm gonna take a slightly different tact and I, you know, go back to the original question here, Slick. I think there are a lot of similarities between what we saw with the Budget Control Act in 2011. And and there are gonna be some comparisons made whether they're accurate or not, because that's just the way the human brain works. I mean, we love analogies, we like things that are the same. Um, and, and I think the fact that the Budget Control Act was designed to reduce both defense and non-defense discretionary spending back in 2011. It was a 10-year plan to reduce spending. And something is going to have to happen with whatever agreement comes out of the Senate and the House that they're gonna have to agree on spending cuts to get the budget moving forward to be able to have an appropriations bill. So I think there are gonna be some similarities there. What I think is important also whenever you're thinking in time or you're using analogies is not to look at what's similar but what's different and obviously there is a pacing threat with china we've got the ongoing conflict in ukraine those are going to temper how much of a hit defense takes in any of the budget discussions and remember only 30 percent of the money that the federal government spends each year is discretionary the rest is mandatory spending that that isn't touched by annual appropriations bill. So there's a small margin to work with. I think defense is going to be okay, And then to sequestration, that, you know, again, going back to 2011, we we often talk about sequestration as being law, but that was the mechanism. If Congress couldn't get to the budget limits that were set out in law in that budget agreement, there was an automatic meat cleaver that came in to cut the spending by a certain percentage, and that was sequestration. Whether or not the next budget agreement has that type of a mechanism to reduce spending is, is, you know, that that remains to be seen. But I I think there are going to be some similarities, but it's the differences that are more
0: important. Awesome. Thanks for that. And General Daptula, you saw the impact the Budget Control Act had on defense. You know, what were some of the worst, most lasting effects? Because I think it's something that really should motivate people to find a middle ground.
4: Yeah, well, what I'd tell you, Slick, is with the Budget Control Act of 2011, the Congress did to our Air Force what the most capable enemies of the United States could only hope to achieve. More than 30 squadrons, including 16 combat squadrons, over 20% of the Air Force combat air forces were grounded, along with air crews, maintenance, and training personnel. Three of the military's foremost air combat training exercises at Red Flag were canceled in 2013. The graduate schools for our combat aviators, the Air Force Weapons School, were canceled. Now, that training will never be recovered. Then on top of that, equipment testing and upgrades to F-22s, F-15s, and F-16s were delayed. as a result of all these actions, Air Force readiness plummeted, and guess what? It's never recovered. Flying and maintaining proficiency in high-performance aircraft is not like riding a bike. It requires constant preparation and training to maintain the superior combat capabilities that have long been the advantage of the United States. But that advantage is slipping away. The result of sequestration, along with the associated underfunding of the Air Force for 30 years in a row now, has simply put the Air Force in real dire straits. Air and Space Force programs now need an infusion of money for the modernization programs required to make up for decades of neglect, and they need to scale to stay on track. When the BCA was passed, modernization was really focused on the combat side on F-22s and F-35s. Now it's F-35, KC-46, B-21, T-7, MH-137, the sentinel ICBM. Next generation air dominance, collaborative combat aircraft, the E 7, the GMTI mission, JADC 2, and multiple Space Force programs. The future of the Air Force was neglected for three decades. We either get it right today or the Air Force is going to auger into the dirt and hard. Now, some of the audience has heard me say, and I'll continue to say this because there's some out there that haven't. And it's vitally important to remember that the first responsibility of the United States government is security of the American people. It's written in the preamble of our Constitution. The federal government was established to first, quote, provide for the common defense and subsequently to promote the general welfare. Congressional decisions, as well as the administration, have confused this prioritization. Sequestration tax defense spending at a rate greater than twice its percentage of the total federal budget. Just give your audience a feel about where we are today. In 1960, we spent about 50% of the federal budget on defense and about 20% on entitlements. Today less than 20% spent on defense and over 60% is spent on entitlements. It's time to return to first principles and to get our priorities straight. And for those senators and representatives out there who are concerned with controlling the federal budget, they need to recognize that what's driving our enormous deficit is entitlement spending, not defense. And regarding that fact, it's crucial to understand that the only thing more expensive than a first rate Air Force is a second rate Air Force.
0: Yeah, sir. I appreciate that breakdown. I I cannot agree with you more. And unfortunately, I think we've got an uphill road to travel. And, you know, laser and sledge, I want to ask you what else is happening on the Hill? You know, I, I hear we won't likely have a budget until the end of February and committee assignments are starting to be released and the parties are obviously posturing for this new Congress. So what else should we be tracking here?
3: Yeah, I, w- I would say, first of all, those are two important things. I, I would say though, we're probably not going to see a budget until the end of March. The Office of Management and Budget, OMB, has finally provided the passbacks to the departments of the executive branch, and it usually takes somewhere between six to ten weeks uh, for those passbacks to go. The numbers get readjusted in the estimates and submission before a consolidated budget request goes over to Capitol Hill. I'm hearing two numbers right now. One is the 20th of March. The other is the 28th of March when we can expect to see the budget go over. I'm gonna kind of lean to the ladder there. I think it'll be late March before we do that.
2: I completely agree with Sledge. What we're hearing right now is that the budget is gonna come over late March. However, there is also rumor that they're trying to expedite getting the budget over to the Hill and could come over as early as the first week of March. But regardless, It is late and it is going to impact how we go forward in trying to get back to regular order. Additionally, the J books, the justification books that we use typically will come in four weeks later than the budget which will slow us down also and then get into okay we're supposed to go back to regular order you know we're already late we've got to start hearings that's the next thing that you're going to see coming up there's nominations that need to, to get done so everything is getting backed up because we're not going to have enough time to get all the hearings we need to get done to get the staffer days so they can listen to what's going on with the services and then build the defense authorization bill as well as the appropriations bill and try to get them on the floor. So right now we're getting backed all the way up where there's just not gonna be enough days and we get ourselves into the same situation, which sets us into a a CR later on. You know, a couple other things you're gonna, I mean, China will be a big play and they have a, a select committee over on the House side, but I think you're gonna see a lot of focus on China. The other thing right now, Just there's going to be some classified hearings before you're going to see the, when all the committees are put together, which you talked about earlier, we expect both house and Senate, we should know all full committee, subcommittees, ranking chairs, it all should be flushed out by the end of this week. And then they can start moving forward with hearings and and setting up everything they need to do to start running the government.
0: Yeah, a lot, a lot to happen in the next few weeks. General Deptula, you know, we've seen headlines about Turkey's desire to procure F-16s, but roadblocks are existing on the Hill. How do you think this is going to go down? Are there hidden agendas? And what about the admission of Finland and Sweden into NATO? Is this a negotiating chip? Well,
4: Slick, my prediction is that ultimately Turkey's going to get the F-16s that it wants and Sweden's going to get Turkey's vote for admission to NATO. Why? Because That's what's in the best interests of Turkey, NATO, and the U.S. to see these things happen. Now, when that will occur is dependent on the political machinations of Turkish politics, both internationally and domestically. There's some out there that believe that Turkey's pursued a precarious path as of late that impedes their own regional defense, As well as their standing in NATO. And I'd suggest to you that, to a large degree, that's due to domestic concerns that have been very long-lasting regarding various Kurdish groups. These Kurdish groups have increasingly agitated against the Turkish government, conducting numerous attacks against Turkish authorities in the southeast portion of their country. Now, it's a very complex situation in Frankly, we don't have time to get into it now, but looking internationally, if Turkey wants to readjust the vector they're on, then they might want to take a bold step. We all know that Ukraine needs more air defenses. So Turkey might offer its uh, S-400 surface-to-air missile system and pursue a path more in alignment with where NATO's going. Now, on the flip side, if Turkey does not get access to F-16s, it's going to go elsewhere, and guess what? Likely to an adversary, and that's not in our interest either. So F-16s present a workable option, but Turkey needs to come to the center, get rid of the S-400s, and vote to admit Sweden and Finland into NATO, and who knows? With this kind of move, they might also be looking at F-35s again.
0: Yeah, I've just got to say for the audience, like, you know, Turkey, a NATO country, with S400s, a Russian-made surface-to-air missile system. Got it. Okay. Sludge and laser. What's the word on the hill about all this?
2: I'll jump in first. Everything that General deptula said is exactly what members on the hill are discussing. I, I don't want to say there's two opposite opinions. I think that there are overall concerns. Again, with the S400, there's over concerns with humanitarian rights. But the key thing is they are a NATO partner. How do we work closer together? There's also the balance between Greece and Turkey. Greece getting 35s, Turkey wants the F-16s, and then NATO, as you played in. The members are looking looking at all these you know certain members have come out senator menendez is against against or would right now is against but i think that if they take the steps that general deptula laid out that i think that would seen as a positive nature and then you've got an election coming up with erdogan in may so all of this is playing out together but i I believe that what general has said is correct i think ultimately they'll get the 16s we get our nato membership and then we try to move forward and it would be great if turkey can make positive overtures in ukraine
3: yeah i'll put an exclamation point on the elections that laser mentioned there the 14th of may the presidential elections in turkey and the, the words of former Speaker Tip O'Neill, all politics are local. And a lot of this is playing to Erdogan's base. So I think once we get past that event, things will, uh, you know, the national interest regarding sending F-16s to Turkey will start to coalesce. I think we'll see a little bit more of a permissive environment at the NAC that would allow both Sweden and Finland to join at the same time. My concern is that if Sweden gets blocked and if Finland were to go it on their own, that would complicate things there. But regardless, the United States has provided security guarantees to both of those countries as they're going through the accession process to get into NATO. And, and quite honestly, President Putin's preoccupied right now, when, and I don't think he would try any adventurism on his northern flank in the meantime.
0: Got it, thanks for uh, for that breakdown. You know, this one's for everybody here. We just saw the dam break on supplying tanks to Ukraine. So what were the main drivers here and what do you think is gonna come next? Any shot at combat aircraft, manned or unmanned? Yeah, hey, let me jump in here, Slick. First, I'm glad they're getting the tanks. That said,
4: this tank debate got blown way out of proportion. The Leopard 2 tank has a max speed of 43 and a half miles an hour. It's got a firing range of 3.1 miles. The Abrams' top speed is 41.6 miles an hour and has a firing range of 2.5 miles, and both of them fire 120-millimeter shells. These are tactical battlefield tools, nothing more. You know, affecting upwards of three miles is not a game-changer. It simply feeds into the meat grinder. What Ukraine needs is a game-changer, and that's air power moving at 600 miles an hour and affecting operations across northern, eastern, and southern Ukraine in minutes with multiple effects, precision, and lethality that tanks or any other kind of ground forces simply cannot accomplish. Now, time and manpower are not on Ukraine's side. They can still lose this war. That's a real, very real potential. And what would happen there from a strategic perspective is that would give China the green light to pursue aggression with the takeaway of what they're seeing in Ukraine of just staying the course and that they'll win in the end. Now, if you want to avoid that outcome, we need to empower Ukraine to eject the Russians from their country. And we need to stop asking, you know, what will happen if we provide air power and start asking what happens if we don't nor can we wait until Ukraine is truly on the ropes. We hope they never get there, but if we keep on slow rolling the provision of equipment that'll make a difference in this, (laughs) they might get there. Training personnel, building the necessary infrastructure, logistics supply chains, and so on takes time. Got that. But if we'd begun this training process last year, they'd be ready to go now. Continuing the current path is an immoral vector is not providing the air power they need, will see mass carnage for innocent Ukrainians.
2: Yeah, I, if I can follow up, General Datula is correct. I mean, I, again, I did, did the dam break. No, but I, and I really thought that Congressman Adam Smith, he said a really neat thing, he said, listen, This underscores that this is the aid and it's not equivalent to us getting in conflict. He said, we're going to give them tanks. They're going to operate the tanks. They're Ukrainian, you know, military that are doing the, it's not NATO. So the same thing goes with F-16, whatever else we want to provide to them. The key thing is, though, that we need to provide it now. We need to start doing it now. There's going to—you've got the Russians that are looking at mobilizing about half a million conscripts. Austin says there's a window of opportunities to get the Ukrainians. What they need, the problem is, is the supply chain that General Just Deptula, we have to ship the tanks, and when did the tanks arrive? And then when's all the training occur? So if we're looking at F-16s or some other assets, the agreement needs to be done now the training needs to be done now the supply chain needs to be moving now so that we can actually get them into the hands of the ukrainian before the russian offensive which everyone is talking you get the anniversary that's coming up we know there's going to be increased number of tanks but they are moving mobilizing. and it looks like some type of spring offensive and then fight through the summer so the quicker we can do this i i will hope that and again everyone we hear up on the hill from a member point of view is they're not opposed to the f-16s but we need to move forward and and they keep saying well that's not a priority for the UK- ukrainians because obviously the ukrainians priority right now is you know artillery armor and ground-based air defense but we've got to make it a priority for the 16th now because by the time it makes it a priority it's going to be too late
4: yeah let me jump in there laser because that's a bit it, this gets real complex. But if you go back to the beginning of this war, air power was President Zelensky's number one priority. And it, it was for months, up to and including his presentation to Congress. But he, he's also pragmatic. And the message he was getting from the State Department wizards and those hanging around the National Security Council and the politicos at the Department of Defense was, hey, cool it. You know, we're not ready to give that to you now. So quit beating your head against the wall. And and so there's some pragmatic politics at play as well. So folks that say, well, it's not on the U.S., not on the Ukrainians' priority list. You bet your butt it was, and it still is. The issue is trying to work the politics to get the delivery of these air power systems that absolutely would make a difference.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, the narrative has shifted away from air power. I mean, it was all about the ghost of of Kiev, right? And now we haven't really talked about, you know, fighter jets flying over there in a long time. You know, and Caitlin, I want to get you in on, on this conversation. What do you think about more sophisticated UAVs for Ukraine?
1: Yeah, thanks. Like, I think it, they're essential. But as General Deptula pointed out, it's been a really long and rocky road because of these political considerations. You know, We have this missile technology control regime that just doesn't prohibit us exporting more sophisticated drones like the Sky Warrior, Army Sky Warrior, but it also doesn't make it easy. And it's too bad because that's a real relic of the Cold War and sort of speaks to the dysfunction we have going on between state and DOD. And I think, you know... Filling in that void, General Datul actually sent a really interesting statistic out earlier about this. You know, So we're not exporting our sophisticated drones, but China sure is. And so if you look at what's going on over there, it's delivered over 282 combat drones to 17 countries in the last decade. Compare that to the U.S., which has delivered just 12 combat drones to two countries. And you see how this dynamic is playing out in Ukraine. Today in Ukraine, there's more than 6,000 Chinese-made DJI quadcopter drones flying around. And these things have proven pretty useful for just doing some intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance and some artillery spotting right on the front lines. But these are not the drones that you need to actually take back territory. And so I don't really see them playing any real role in either close air support for those tanks that are coming down the line or certainly not for doing any kind of direct attack deep within occupied Russian territory. As General Datula said, for that, you really need real air power.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great point, and, and I'm I'm throwing this out there, Caitlin. We're really gonna have to talk with you and, and break down how UAVs and drones are being utilized over there because, you know, just the news reports are pretty astonishing to see what they're bringing to the fight. What I what I want to do now is, is shift gears for a second because the media got early access to a memo that General Minahan, who's the head of Air Mobility Command, wrote, and he addresses, you know, the global security environment with a specific focus on China. And I'm going to tell you right now, truth up front, I'm voting Minahan for president because the memo was clear. He spoke to the threat and he spoke you know with a sense of urgency and it was really refreshing so my two cents is you know we need a lot more messaging like this out of the dod and the department of the air force specifically you know just to talk about what's going on with air power and being needed and what the threats are and laser you flag this to us so how about you give us a rundown
2: everything you just said i agree clear concise message from a warfighter to his troops and, and the the bottom line, if I, you know, people were picking apart different pieces of it. The bottom line is we need to be ready to either deter or win. I mean that, and, and I don't care whatever little pieces they want to pick out. But that's all he's trying to do. It could be 2025? And you had, you know, several other leaders that were out in the same time he was out in Indo-PACOM that also had similar messages. And the whole focus is we, his AMC, he's trying to get AMC ready to go ahead and execute the mission and deter China, or if, if needed, Go defeat China. So again, he was—he was probably gave the best talk at AFA, and I just thought this was one of the best memos I've read in a long time.
0: Yeah, and and I like everybody else's opinion. What do you guys think about the tone and play from like, General Minahan?
4: What I tell you, slick, is uh, General Minahan should be commended for the clarity in which he delivers his message, sense of urgency, and speaking as a warfighter, not a bureaucrat, or worse, an academic. So, Mitchell Institute's going to do everything in our means to support him. Look, any fight in the Pacific is going to be won or lost largely based on logistics. An enemy doesn't need to shoot down an F-22 if it can ground it for want of supplies. That's the same effect and easier. So, we need to stop kidding ourselves that a logistics system built upon commercial principles that prizes efficiency over resiliency is going to hold up to combat stress. This has been a problem with bringing business people into the Department of Defense leadership over the last several decades. Just-in-time logistics doesn't cut it when it comes to fighting a war. And quite frankly, this is how we've gotten ourselves into a mess with munitions. We simply don't have sufficient stocks or the industrial base to build them. We also need to wake up when it comes to the fragility of the current aerial mobility fleet. The C-17 declared IOC three decades ago and has been flown hard ever since. We don't even have a budget wedge for a replacement. This is not viable to an effective combat capability in the future. CRAF, Civil Reserve Air Fleet, is not a combat fleet. We should have been terrified that it took CRAF mobilization to handle the Afghanistan withdrawal. That was a minor event compared to a major regional combat operation under fire at scale. Now, what about operating in the information age? Mobility demands information, knowing what to move, when to move it, and how to avoid threats. Inventory control is the name of the game. Do we think that the current system is going to hold up under fire? I doubt it. If a second lieutenant standing at an Agile Combat Employment or ACE base cannot connect to the broader system and push-pull necessary information, forget it, ACE isn't going to work. So I don't even think that network even exists yet. Now, General Minahan wants to move out on these issues and quite frankly, he's spot on and it's, it's wonderful and refreshing. To have someone like him speak that way, but guess what happened this morning? Department of Defense and their infinite wisdom came out and pushed him aside and kind of said, "Well, you know, that's that's we don't we don't necessarily agree." Nonsense.
3: Yeah, I would jump in on the same thing. You know, back here in the the Beltway AOR, you're going to get a lot of that. And I can when I read the the pushback from from DoD and we'll. You know, we'll have to wait and see what the, the larger administration does. You know, Robin Olds on a flight line in Vietnam and uh, saying something and then the uh, the public affairs captain going what the colonel meant to say. I'll I'll, I'll be curious to see what uh, what we get in the coming days on this is what the general meant to say. But spot on kudos to General Minahan and, and absolutely right. We, we can't deter and we can't win if we uh, we don't acknowledge a threat and then do something meaningful to counter it.
0: Well, I was just going to add, I was trying not to be in the, be the cynic in the group, but I'm glad that we pointed it out that, you know, hopefully he does not get sidelined and we, we continue to get this refreshing leadership from a warfighter's perspective.
2: Like, I will tell you, he's got some, I don't want to say naysayers on the Hill, but there were several members that came out in support of what he said.
0: But again, that's great to hear.
1: General Brown, the chief of staff of the Air Force, has said accelerate, change or lose. And here you have a frontline combat commander actually trying to go out and do that. So he should be commended for that, not pushed aside or told that he's doing the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, great, great point, Caitlin. I really appreciate that. All right, I'm going to spin the globe once again. This past week, we saw the U.S. and Israel host a major exercise called Juniper Oak, and we're talking big. Check out these numbers. 140 aircraft, including F-35s and B-52s, naval vessels, including the carrier H.W. Bush, and it enforces firing over 180,000 pounds of live munitions. So this was the largest exercise we've ever seen held between the two countries. And it brings up a major point. We talk a lot about the fight in Ukraine and we mentioned the threat poised by China, but other security challenges are still out there. I mean, you know, Iran had to have a major factor driving this exercise signaling to Tehran to color in the line. So General Deptula, can you speak to us about how you see the U.S. military balancing these sorts of risks right now?
4: Well, this is exactly why the Air Force and the Space Force need to be scaled for realistic global demand. The Department of the Air Force faces concurrent demands everywhere. That's because our national defense strategies calls for it. Pacific, Europe, Middle East, Africa, Arctic, Homeland, and so on and so forth. Now, the same is not true for the other services. Last time I checked, there isn't a huge demand for a large standing army in the Pacific, and the Navy has a limited role in Europe or the Middle East. Air and space cover the entire globe, everywhere, all the time. So, let's get down to brass tacks. A one major regional conflict versus a two major regional conflict demand may be relevant for the other services, but it's wholly inappropriate for the Air Force given the concurrency of demand wherever conflict breaks out. If we size only for one major theater war, And we're green-lighting every adversary when we're bogged down doing one thing. The Air Force needs to be sized for a minimum of fighting and winning two major regional conflicts simultaneously. This also speaks to the diversity of the Air Force and Space Force required to maintain a balanced portfolio. Building to succeed at the high end of conflict is obviously crucial, but it can't be the only set of capabilities that are built because not everything needs to go into contested airspace. Building that sort of force would be unaffordable and suboptimize other attributes that we seek to have in our system and inventory. And that's why assets like MQ-9 and the the B-1 are hugely valuable. It's because they deliver necessary combat effects in a broad range of areas with enormous cost effectiveness. And that matters. I've said it before, and I'll continue saying it, and maybe somebody on the Hill will pick up on it sometime in the future, but a single B-1 can deliver the entire ordnance delivery capacity of an aircraft carrier at range. That's cost effectiveness, folks. So if you're not going to give us more top line, then the Department of Defense needs to get smarter about the way it allocates money inside its defense budget. By the way, Juniper Oak had both F-35s and the B-52 in play, and that speaks to the full-spectrum capabilities that we need. Awesome.
0: Anybody else want to weigh in on this?
3: Yeah, Slick, if I could just kind of bring us back to the exercise. Obviously, the, the reason you exercise is to improve your readiness, work on interoperability, and, and you know, le- learn to, to work with your coalition partners there. But there's also a strategic messaging aspect of, of any exercise, especially when you live in a dangerous neighborhood and, and that, you know, where, where Israel is, is truly a dangerous neighborhood. And that country has a a very long track record of vigorously exercising their right of self-defense. So I I think part of the exercise was to send a message and I'll be really curious to learn some of the details of the recent explosion at a weapons facility in central Iran. If this was uh, any, any way related to that, or if there's, you know, a, a stronger message that was coming out of the exercise.
0: Copy all. All right, Caitlin, the DOD issued updated guidance regarding the artificial intelligence. And of course, that's been such a hot topic. So what's up here? And you know, what's the impact that our tech development and operational activities are going to get from this?
1: Yeah, so the original policy, DOD policy on autonomous weapons came out way back in 2012, so over 10 years ago. So this is really just an update. And it's a really important one, though, because if you think back to 2012, artificial intelligence, which is sort of one of the main technologies that power autonomy, was still so new, and the military applications were just at the very beginning of being well understood. And so there was a lot of confusion initially, even with the new policy. You know, you had senior leaders kind of saying, oh, you know, we're not allowed to have a a weapon system that takes the human out of the loop. Well, in fact, the 2012 policy didn't didn't prohibit that, it did not ban autonomous lethal weapon systems. It just put into place some review processes to make sure that the technology was safe and well tested. And so the new policy, we've come 10 years ahead now, and clearly AI has come a long way. And so now there's a need to update the policy because people kind of understand a little bit more how artificial intelligence could be relevant in a combat setting. and so it's time to sort of update that policy. And, and the main thing that this policy does is it just expands on the 2012 policy to say, hey, we know that this AI can be really important in combat for speeding up decision-making and, and and reducing manpower requirements. But we also understand that we have to keep this AI safe and monitor it. No one wants to see you know killer robots indiscriminately out there killing things. And so I think the updated policy actually strikes a really nice balance because it says, hey, DOD, We do need to field autonomous systems, but we also need to have the right safeguards in place. And so just to give you a little detail on this, what the new document does is it actually creates a new AI working group. It's got some very senior people on it, the the undersecretaries for policy, for research and engineering, acquisition and sustainment, and the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And so if a service wants to develop and field a new autonomous weapon system, they've got to meet a pretty high bar, they've got to get through this, this working group. And in fact, they have to do it twice. They have to do it when they want to develop the system and then they've got to go back again to this working group when they want to field it. So that's where the bar is pretty high. But on the other hand, the policy is pretty sensible in terms of it, it actually has a nice flowchart in there that describes like circumstances when you don't need to go through the working group. And there's actually quite a few of them. So if you have a semi-autonomous weapon system, which means that once this system is activated, the operator actually has to select the target. This does not need to go through the review. Some other kinds of weapon systems that don't need to go through. If you already have an autonomous weapon system, it's it's not being substantially modified. It's been previously approved. That does not have to go through. And then, of course, we have this interesting category of close-in, time-sensitive weapon systems, like the Aegis destroyer missile defense systems, for example. Those do not have to go through this review process because those have been around for a while and are basically their point is to just quickly react to threats that are coming in so fast that a human couldn't possibly intervene. And so, there's a nice balance in this in this policy, I think, between sort of being cautious and ethical about the AI, but also understanding and acknowledging that we can't put too much red tape into this system. I think there's a huge credit. Credit goes to Dr. Michael Horowitz, who's the head of the OSC Policy Office on Emerging Technology and played a leading role in this policy. Um, He's someone who's been very thoughtful in terms of just writing a lot about what artificial intelligence might do to the battle space. And, you know, right now, this is all kind of theoretical. And I think he's really pushing the envelope to understand what the implications could be and come up with a pretty, what I think is a pretty pragmatic policy.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that you're breaking that down because I have to admit, Caitlin, as soon as you said working group and I was just thinking of whatever your acronym letters that are going to end in WIG, you know, it's going to be an organization that probably doesn't produce much, but it really sounds like, especially for the pros and cons of what makes it, actually makes it to this working group, seems like it's going to be pretty effective. Anybody else want to weigh in on this?
4: Yeah, I'll just offer that we need to use realistic measures to balance uh, combat effectiveness and ethics. And, And that means acknowledging that a country like China is gonna use artificial intelligence to speed up their decision-making, and we need to respond to that. But on the flip side, too much reliance on AI is gonna interject vulnerabilities, both ethical and performance-based, and that's where human involvement is still crucial. So it's a balance. I'd also remind the audience, and this big, I I don't wanna take too much time here, but remember, it's humans that are writing the algorithms upon which artificial intelligence is based so we can write algorithms that comply with all the laws of armed conflict and ethical quandaries in advance but bottom line is military folks need to watch these debates closely because academics left to their own devices are going to make false conclusions because they really lack the background to understand the variables in play in war it's it's like asking a combat pilot to render major Medical advice, you really should consult a doctor because pilots aren't surgeons and surgeons aren't combat pilots. So the same holds for significant military judgments at the strategic, operational, and tactical levels. So this is something to watch. People may be well-meaning, but unless they've been a practitioner, they need to exercise caution on leading to too many conclusions absent rigorous informed research and first person consultation.
2: Just uh, three quick things is, number one, as I was reading through it, I, I, a little concern, I, I agree on the balance, just a little concern that it, it may call, it may take too much time to get needed equipment fielded our adversaries are not taking time, they're not as bureaucratic as we are. So like other systems that we've tried to field, it's just concerning as I was looking at and reading the study development, all this, I'm just concerned that does it slow us down? I, and I understand all the requirements and the need to make sure that the our autonomous weapon systems are doing what they're supposed to do. At the same time, we need to make sure that we can field them as soon as they're ready. The second thing, it, it is great that we have increased our spending on on AI to include economy, you know, from a half a billion to over two and a half billion, and the last thing is big kudos on the Air Force, who just had its first university-affiliated research center, Howard University, which is also the first historically black college and university. So, and again, they're going to be focused on tactical autonomy and manned and unmanned teaming. So that's, it's a great thing, Air Force is moving in the right direction.
0: Well, everyone, I can't say thanks enough again for taking your time out for this rendezvous. We had a lot of really important stuff to talk about and I uh, really, really appreciate it. But unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. So General Deptula, Laser, Sledge, and Caitlin, it's been awesome awesome catching up. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet, Slick. Have a great aerospace power kind of day. Same thank you, Slick. Always a pleasure, thanks. Thanks, Slick. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.